You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hi, and welcome to The Blackest Questions. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer, politics editor for The Griot and associate professor of political science at Fordham University. In this podcast, we ask our guests five of The Blackest Questions so we can learn a little bit more about them and have some fun while we're doing it. We're also going to learn a lot about black history, past and present. So here's the way this works. We have five rounds of questions about us, black history, the whole diaspora, current events, everything. With each round, the questions will get a little bit tougher, and the guest has 15 seconds to get it right. If they answer the question correctly, they will receive one symbolic black fist and hear this. If they get it wrong, they'll hear this. But we'll still love them anyway. And after the five questions, there'll be a black bonus round at the end just for fun. Our guest for this episode is Roy Wood Jr. Roy has entertained millions across the stage, television, and radio. And in 2015, he joined the Best Effing News team as a correspondent on Comedy Central's Emmy-nominated The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Comedy Central continues its long-standing relationship with the talented comedian and actor, collaborating on two podcasts, Roy's Job There and Behind the Scenes, as well as a third hour-long stand-up special, Imperfect Messenger, now streaming on Paramount+. Roy will star along, uh, alongside John Hamm in the upcoming film, Confess Fletch. Earl Maurice Fletcher. They caught me in the middle of a yawn. Can you imagine that? We'll also executive produce, write, and star in Fox's untitled single camera comedy about the National Guard. Roy's additional credits include Only Murders in the Building, Better Call Saul, Space Force, The Last OG, and the Emmy-nominated PBS documentary, The Neutral Ground, for which he served as the executive producer. I am so excited to have you here, Roy. Thank you so much for joining the Blackest <laughs> Questions. Yes, thank you. And I apologize in advance if my voice is a little off from time to time. I was out way too late being irresponsible with friends I hadn't seen in a long time. That's all I yeah, say. Yeah, I saw, I saw your Instagram feed. Uh, shenanigans abound. I'm not judging. No judging. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm so excited to have you here because, you know, we met a long time ago thanks to the, the brilliant comedian Marina Franklin. Shout out to Marina Franklin. Yeah. And I just, I love your comedy because you're super smart, but it's observational, it's thoughtful, it's political, it's timely. Uh, tell our listeners how you first got into comedy really quickly. I was at Florida A&M University, shout out to the family rallies, and comedy was always something that I wanted to try and get into, but the issue in Tallahassee is that, you know, comedy is not a regular thing in the Florida panhandle, but it was at Florida State, so I would go over to Florida State and pretend to be a student, I had a, I had a partner from Birmingham that was on the student activities board, and she straight up hooked me up with a Seminole card. And I would show up to Florida State student comedy competitions. And that's kind of how I got my feet wet. I had a screenwriting class as well that kind of got me a little bit into the world of film and television writing. And from there, you know, that that was it. When I graduated college in 01, I went back home. I took over for Ricky Smiley on the morning show, the, the seat that he vacated to go start his syndicated show. And I did stand up and I did radio and that was my life for the first 10 years of my career. And I'm so thankful for it. Yeah. Well, it sounds like radio is in your blood though, because wasn't your dad on the radio in Alabama as well? Yeah. I mean, my dad goes, I mean, his radio lineage goes all the way back to Chicago to WVON. You know, my father was one of the first, he was the first news director at WVON when they first signed on, he hired Don Cornelius. My dad, I like to say, Wherever black people were suffering, 
my dad showed up with a tape recorder and was like there trying to make sure that the truth mm. got out there. He was in Vietnam, Rhodesian Civil War before pre Zimbabwe, uh, South Africa. He was getting shot at at snipers during the the riots in South Africa. You know, of course the civil rights movement. Duh. But you know, my dad. I like to joke that he did the real work, and then I just come and do a weird version of it with a bunch of jokes for but Daily Show. It's, <laughs> so it's not. It's like saying yeah, it's like that civil different. rights 2.0. I mean, because the, your observations about black culture and black <laughs> society are actually spot on. Okay, so one day I'm going to play my mbira for you, which is an instrument from Zimbabwe. Okay, so are you ready to play the black expression? Okay, All right, <laughs> I am very nervous about this game. You, you, you know why? You know why, why games that? like this make me nervous? Because I don't know how deep into the diaspora you gonna go. Because they be like, like when I like when when y'all email me about this, I was nervous. I was like, I don't know if I know enough black. Do I know enough? How black am I? Oh my lord, they they gonna we gonna find out in public that I'm not black enough. And I get to play Alex Trebek, where it's just like you know, I know some of this stuff. I don't know all of it, but. As I tell our listeners every week, this A is not to embarrass our guests, B, Black history is American history, and C, it's just a way for us to recognize and realize how much we know, but how much we should know about all the beauty that is part of our culture and our history. That's all. You ready? Mm. Um, <laughs> no, I'm still not ready, but thank you for trying to comfort me. Let's get started. <laughs> Question one. This institute's research center is also home to an expansive archive of documents from the civil rights movement and nearly 500 recorded oral histories relevant to the period. What is this place? This institute. I got a lot of documents mm -hmm. on civil rights. Do we get hints? Is this like millionaire or is it like Jeopardy? You just got 10 seconds and that's it. You just got 10 seconds. And so I think our 10 seconds are up. Oh, Lord Jesus. Okay, Tuskegee. Okay, good guess. But it's the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. Well, that's not fair. Now you're really making me look silly. It's an interpretive museum that traces the journey of the civil rights advocates of the 1950s and 60s who changed the course of American history. And you can even examine a replica of the Freedom Riders bus and go behind the actual jail cell where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote his famous Letters from a Birmingham Jail. So, as a Birmingham native, have you been to the Birmingham yeah. Civil Rights Institute? Oh, many times. Yeah, oh, when they first built it, I was still in high school, and that was like a mandatory field trip. Like, you, people forget that Birmingham is still like a 75% black metro. The school, the public schools, is all predominantly black. So, you're going to get your civil rights education. Oh, you're going to get, if you don't get nothing else, mm -hmm. you're going to learn about some struggle. They send you down to Montgomery, and, you know, it's. It's a lot. I will say, though, it's interesting growing up within that and seeing it then, but then going mm -hmm. back as an adult and it hidden way differently. No, well, I mean, you go back quite a bit. I mean, I follow you on social media and you're pretty active in the Birmingham community. I saw that you did, you know, quite a bit for some baseball teams and you're involved in local issues, you know, with this long leg legacy of black history that comes out of the South and the yeah. impact. What do you think is is the current impact of Birmingham today and what what should, you know, we northerners be thinking about when we think about Birmingham? You got to stop thinking about Birmingham the way you think about Alabama. Mm. Alabama ain't Birmingham the same way Georgia ain't Atlanta. You know, it's in Georgia. 
it's in Alabama, but there are a lot of progressive people that are wanting to do a lot of different things there. You know, Jefferson County, uh, Jefferson County, you know, Birmingham, Jefferson County at one point had the most sitting black women judges of any county in America. I think the number was mm -hmm. like 11 or 12 at some point. So, and these were women that were doing all types of progressive non non-jail related Senate, go get your high school diploma and I'll waive your fine type of stuff. So there are a lot of progressive people there that are working to make things a lot different. You know, you know, we have a wonderful mayor, Randall Woodfin, who, you know, this brother's young, this brother's brought a lot of different ideas. The one story I like to tell about what Birmingham is now uh, goes back to 2020 during George Floyd. And we had our, as I like to call it, our statue moment. And so there's a statue in Lynn Park that's, you know, Confederate general, whatever, whatever. And we had tried to take it down in the past. The city tried to take it down. But every time Birmingham tries to do something, the state mm -hmm. puts their foot on Birmingham's neck. City of Birmingham approved a $15 minimum wage, I think, in 2015. And the state passed down a mandatory statewide minimum wage. Like that's the like stupid games that happen. So the fine for removing this Confederate monument was going to be $25,000. And because of that, the city didn't move it because the city didn't want to pay it. George Floyd happens. People get fed up. A lot of local activists, they were the ones, and I'm not going to include myself in this, but they were the ones who were there and were, you know, 10 toes on the ground, demanding that this statue come down today. And Randall Woodfin was one of the people that came out there and gave his guarantee to the crowd that he would bring the statue down. And he was a man of his word. Uh, I think within two days, the statue was down. Then a group of white people raised money to pay the fine for the city. That's what Birmingham is now. It's that that's that's what. And then I come in two days later and help clean up the city because a couple out of towners came in and broke some windows and stuff. You know, my my contribution to the city of Birmingham, you know, I'm not there on a regular enough basis to be a part of the active fight. I just can't. I was there when I did mornings for 10 years. So I know what mm -hmm. I know what's needed from a present standpoint. But what I can be is support and part of the solutions like I am a big advocate advocate for literacy, especially with black kids. So, you know, literacy, and I don't have to tell you and your listeners, the connection between literacy and crime rates. And you're talking about reducing crime, increase literacy, also increase STEM, also increase, you know, access to technology. And so those are the things that I try to come in from time to time and support or fund or bring a light to or, you know, whatever word you want to put to it. Um, but yeah, Birmingham is a lot of great people trying to come together to, to do the right thing. Oh, I love how you have like this love for a city. I've moved around a ton, so I don't have a, I don't have a Birmingham, but um, I, I love <laughs> to hear you talk about Birmingham. Okay. You ready for question number two? No, but come on with it. <laughs> you can do it. You can do it. <laughs> okay. Question number two. In 1936, this black businessman developed and wrote what became known as the green book a listing and travel guide for all first-class hotels that cater to African-Americans yeah. in the United States. Who is he? I don't know. I don't know. And I'm embarrassed 
because when the Green Book movie came out, we were working on another accompanying podcast version of it. And we were trying to get Mahershala to be a part of... Ah! Sorry for yelling. I don't know. <laughs> that one I... Okay. For sure I don't know. Last name King? This is probably on the... This is on the tip of probably a lot of listeners' tongues. It's Victor Hugo Green, born in November 9th, 1892 in New York City. And as African-Americans began to own automobiles and take part in the developing American car culture, they were restricted by racial segregation in the United States. And so there were state laws in the South that required separate facilities for African-Americans and many motels and restaurants in Northern states also included them, excluded them, excuse me. So Victor Hugo Green changed that by publishing the Negro Motorist Green Book, where he collected information on hotels, restaurants, and gas stations that served African-Americans since some towns did not have any hotels or motels that would accept African-American guests. And Hugo later changed the name to the Negro Traveler's Green Book, where he listed tourist homes where owners would rent rooms for the Negro Traveler, whether on business or pleasure, since there's always trouble finding suitable accommodation in hotels and guest houses. And so Green reviewed hotels and restaurants that did business with African-Americans during the time of Jim Crow laws and racial segregation in the United States. And so he printed about 15,000 copies each year. And there were actually similar guides that were published for Jewish travelers who sometimes face discrimination. And although Green died in 1960, the publication continued with his widow, Alma, who was the editor through 1966. And as you mentioned, there was uh, the Academy Award winning uh, Best Original Screenplay and Best Motion Picture of the Year, uh, the film called The Green Book, which was in 2018. Uh, with Mahershala Ali, who won an Academy Award for his role as Dr. Don Shirley. So, uh, The Green Book. Before the film The Green Book was released, had you heard of The Traveler's Guide? Yes, I'd heard of it, um, only because they were trying to do something similar. Like, it had been used as kind of like a North Star comparison tool for oh we need to bring that back and you know you know about the black pages and so mm-hmm. that was you know there was a group i can't remember if they were in birmingham or in tallahassee but they were trying to do another version of the black pages and they kept referring to the green book as kind of the the model for that but the black pages of course was just the yellow pages but just black owned stuff mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't specifically travel centric so I ha- I was aware of the Green Book. Um, I will say that you know I didn't I didn't get to see the movie. You know I'm a little leery about yeah you know the framing of certain black experiences. You know I, you know I'm trying to be nice, but you get what I'm saying. You know? Listen, yeah. I didn't watch the movie because I was like I'm tired of these civil rights movies. No. You know putting a white person at the center. So I didn't see it. Sorry, Mr. Ali, but I skipped it. <laughs> I'm happy he got the trophy. I've seen him in other things and I've enjoyed those. He's brilliant. He's brilliant. But it's like, I'm not, but that's typical for the Oscars for me. They give you an Oscar for something that I tend to disagree with and not enjoy. So, you know. But for the most part, those films are not made for the black audience, in my opinion. It's something that black people can watch and enjoy if they want, but it's for educating everybody else that don't know what we already know about the topic. And so because of that, the scripts, uh, and then also the scripts are given notes by people who have not lived the experience as well sometimes. And I think that that can sometimes, for me, Certain films of a certain genre, I have to be in a mood to watch Mm -hmm. because I know what the film is going to do to me on the backside of it. And so I have to like, okay, 
let me let me see if I don't know if I'm ready for this one. Right. I mean, well, certain films that center whiteness just make me frustrated when it's about the black experience. And I understand, just as you said, oftentimes it's to educate white viewers and, you know, and, and do it in a palatable way so you can spoon feed them part of American history, which is black history as well. Yeah, which I hate, which I don't. <laughs> right. Like, you just need to know the truth. Exactly. <laughs> like, just exactly. go and get hit over the head with it. <laughs> Rip the bandaid off. <laughs> now, now, here's a question, because, you know, Malcolm X said that everything south of the Canadian border is essentially the U.S. South. Um, but I feel like the the American South gets this bad rap that it's like way more racist than the North and they struggle with race, race relations so much more than the North. As someone who kind of lives in both worlds or has lived in the South, you know, you went to school, you born and raised there, but you're currently living in New York and, and up North and traveling across the country. Do you think that the South has, has deeper struggles than the North? Or do you think that kind of our history of American racism is, is kind of across the board? I think it's terrible across the board. I just think that the South it's in the open, the North it comes with a smile. Mm -hmm. So it's harder to detect, mm -hmm. which honestly, you know, and, and this is coming from a child we were in Memphis to the third grade before we moved to Birmingham, before I went to college in Florida. And I spent every summer in Clarksdale, Mississippi. So that's four states worth of racism that I've been. I'm like the Bourdain of <laughs> discrimination. I've sampled in, in a lot of different metropolises. The South will straight up tell you, you know, you can't eat here where I feel like the North will say, well, we don't have a table right now. Those tables are all reserved. Mm, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And I think that's, that's the difference. Like you'll never leave an experience in the South going, is that racist? Right. Scratching your head. Was well, I call it hologram racism. Hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not exactly sure what happened. So it's like, it depends on the angle. When I was trying to get apartments down South, when I would move into and get an apartment or whatever, it was, oh, we don't have any units. Just straight up, nah. And they would just look you in the face. And what? the listing was in the paper. I know you have a unit, dog. When I moved to New York, this is when I got the Daily Show. When I got the Daily Show, they were like, yeah, we got a unit, but for you, we need three months right. rent and a deposit. Mm -hmm. I ain't never heard of no ish like that in my life, but you're hiding behind policy and weird, whatever, whatever. And I can't prove it. I can't prove it. Then when I got the place, then once I, once I showed the money that I had the proof that, yeah, all right, here's three months deposit. Boom. What next? What What's the next hurdle? Well, I had to get, and this is true, I had to get a letter from Comedy Central verifying that I have a job. After I've already jumped through the hoop that you said, and I made it through that hoop, there was another hoop. And to me, that's more maddening. Right. In the South, they just go, no. It's either yes or no, and you know what it is. Whereas up here, it's, it's weird. And I couldn't get mad at it because I just got hired. I have to go to work tomorrow. I need a place to stay. And it wasn't just one building. Multiple buildings mm -hmm. were playing yeah. those types it's of games with me. And that would have never happened down south. Okay. We're ready for question number three? I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. Question number three. 
This population of people is a people of mixed African and indigenous American ancestry with roots mostly in Central American countries like Honduras, Belize, Guatemala, and Nicaragua. Who are they? I'm gonna not guess rather than give what I know is the wrong guess. When you first started asking the question, I thought you were gonna go Gullah Geechee, but then you pivoted to a different region on me. Yes, it's the Garifuna. Descendants of Carib Indians and Africans, mm -hmm. Garifuna are people who went to British Honduras and Guyana. They are Afro-Latinx community who originally lived on the Caribbean island of St. Vincent's and speak Garifuna and Arawakan language and Venetian Creole. It's a total of, uh, the total of Garifuna Creole and African population estimation is about 3 million, with about a 30% estimation of this population residing in Honduras, uh, which makes Honduras the nation with the highest population of blacks in Central America. So had you heard of the Garifuna before? No, th this is why I like doing stuff with you, because I leave educated. I, th this is, I was not taught this in Alabama public schools. <laughs> <laughs> like, no. Like you travel a lot as a comedian. Like I'm I I consistently say that you are literally the hardest working person. Not black man, not comedian. You're the hardest working person I know. But have you done much international travel to say South and Central America or the Caribbean? No. Like honestly, well you have to remember the first 10 years of my career, I was in radio. I've been doing stand up 23 years. Ten of those years, I was in radio. Seven of those years, I've been at Comedy Central. So it's a bit of a tether. So it doesn't give you an opportunity to go anywhere for more than a week and a half ever at any given time. So in that little six-year gap, six, seven-year gap that I had, I had most of my, the bulk of my international travel was USO tours, which, I mean, honestly, I don't count that as international travel because you're visiting a base and every military base feels like America. Mm, mm -hmm. Like the drive in is exotic and different, but once you're on the base, you may as well be in El Paso. There's a Baskin Robbins, there's a Burger King. Like it's not, you know, yeah, I went to Baghdad, but I stayed four hours and they flew us right. the hell out of there after the last joke was told. <laughs> so did I see a rat? Right. Like, no. But South America, no, I've only been to Argentina and Uruguay, you know, as far as the South American kind. I have a lot of travel that I have to catch up on once I'm done with the Daily Show. Like whenever that happens, that's probably the first thing I'm going to do is just take a year to just go and just be and observe. Right. Well, I'll give you a list because, you know, my passport stays hot. <laughs> you know, I, I'm like Mark Twain. I got to leave this country to to love this country. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's a lot. That's that We can unpack that in another podcast. Yes. Okay. You ready for question number four? Okay. I'm ready. Okay. Nearly 200 years ago, Central Park's landscape near West 85th Street entrance was home to a community of predominantly free African-American property owners. What was it called? I just don't know nothing today. It's I'm going to pour myself a little water while you tell me the answer. The answer is Seneca Village, which began in 1825 with the purchase of land by a trustee of the AME Zion Church. And so following this purchase, this African-American community grew steadily and was later supplemented by Irish immigrants who also moved into the area. 
And so both populations were marginalized at the time and faced similar discrimination throughout the city. And so despite their social and racial conflicts elsewhere, the Irish and African-Americans in Seneca Village chose to live in close proximity to one another. And so this was a very unique time and there were high rates of land ownership <laughs> and education. Um, it was sort of a black middle class that was Seneca Village. And so in 1856, the city of New York acquired the village through eminent domain, which means the city can come in and just take land. Of course, we just jacked your, jacked your stuff. It's now known as Central Park. And so the, the city paid landowners, um, though many found the payment inadequate, oftentimes in eminent domain, and the renters were displaced without compensation. And there are a few records of where residents went after their eviction and the community was destroyed. So we actually don't know where many of these African-Americans ended up settling. And so now that you're a New Yorker, do you actually use Central Park often? Um, a little bit when I'm with the boy, you know, six year old, it's a safe place to ride the bike together other than the West side highway, which is mm -hmm. fun, but deafening. Right. So, you know, the park is much quieter and nice. And I'm on a couple of softball leagues out there. So, you know, for one reason or another, I have to be up that way, but not on a regular, like, I'm not the person who gets up every day. I'm not a regular Okay. at the park. I swing through. I'm a tree hugger. You know, I'm a birder. I literally hug trees. Like, mm. I'm a nature nerd. Is that growing up in the South, I always assume that Southerners are like nature people, but that is an incorrect assumption. But that's, but it's so hot that now I'm just, I'm pro inside. Mm. Right. I'm very, I'm very pro air conditioning. And I like being outside. Like, I'll sit on a porch. I'll, like, I'm the guy who'll go to the beach and then sit at a table and I'm content. I don't ever need to touch the water. Okay. And I'm, and I'm happy. I'm just as happy as whoever's neck deep out there in the ocean. I don't need to go all the way out into right. it. I just need to be next to it close by. Okay. That's my move. I'm close by nature. I'm the person who puts on number four suntan oil and is like, I'll be out here for the next 12 hours baking. <laughs> I was, I was in Hawaii. And I sat at a poolside bar in jeans and sneakers, and I was content. <laughs> I'm sure I should have put on shorts. No judging. But th th that was enough. Just being around people and people watching, that's kind of more of my mm -hmm. thing than actually being out in the forest, like in the... Okay. Like, I'll be honest with you. Anytime I'm outside on a hike in the back of my head, I'm like, All right, how much longer I got to be out here? At some point, I'm going to take you to Central Park, and we're going to go birding with the, the Wild Bird Fund. I'm just going to put that out there, okay? It's, it won't be very long, but it's we're going to do Central Park nature to, to honor our ancestors I, in Seneca Village. I'm okay with that because <laughs> it's shaded. Yes. Most of the bird watching footage I've seen is shade, so I'm okay Okay, with question number five. All right, last one. Fingers crossed. Okay. Founded 42 years before Jamestown and 55 years before the Pilgrims arrived on American soil, this Florida location housed America's first community of free blacks. What is it? Rosewood. It's St. Augustine's Fort Mose. You heard of that? Oh, no. Why did I not know that? Because it's called First Coast. They call themselves First Coast News. Every St. Augustine's the world's oldest city in Ponce de Leon. Ah. So discovered only 25 years ago, archaeologists uncovered the site of Fort Mose, the first legally sanctioned community of free blacks in what would become the United States. This remarkable landscape is now a museum and a state park and reveals a glimpse into St. Augustine's lesser known history. And so they can boast the only 17th century fort still standing in North America. Did you know that? So there's a long history. 
I'm very ashamed of myself for not no, knowing that's this okay. one. Well, you can go and, and visit the grounds and enjoy the boardwalk that's built on the site. And today, Fort Mose is now a historic state park and declared a national landmark in 1994. And nothing remains of the fort or the wooden structures where the original residents lived, but you can still go and visit. Okay, so you are a Florida A&M Gator. In ta- is Gator or Rattler? Rattler? I don't know Rattler. why I put Gator. Rattler. Yeah, that's right. So Gators. you're a Rattler. That's you're the... the, the, the Rattlesnake in Tallahassee, where St. Augustine is roughly a three yes. and a half hour drive away. Um, and during your college years in Florida, did you ever go and visit Fort Mose? Yes. And not the fort, but the city of St. Augustine. I performed everywhere. Here's a stupid trivia fact to know about me. I've performed in more cities in the states of Florida and Georgia than anywhere else on earth. Oh. They ain't teaching you about the struggle across the diaspora. They only going to teach you. Thank God I know the Roman numerals. Now I know which Super Bowl we own. For whatever reason, there's always comedy happening in some random ass town or some random little armpit of a city. Uh, not calling San Augustine armpit. But uh, yes, I've been there a couple of like the idea that, oh, yeah, this is the first mm-hmm. city. This is where everything started for this whole land here. I was always fascinated with that. You know, you know what I do enjoy? I'm not a nature person, but I do enjoy history. I do enjoy, you know, museums. And, and in this case, like old buildings and ruins and stuff like that. So yeah, I'll, I'll add this one to the list. I'll go check it out. Oh, Roy. Okay. So we've had an interesting time with these questions, lots of tip of the tongue answers, but the whole point is actually not to get a hundred percent on the test. The whole point is for us to learn a little bit more about American history and black history in particular. And before I let you go, because obviously I can talk to you all day, we have time for some black bonus rounds. Are you ready for black lightning okay. round? I'm ready. Okay. Ready, ready. All right. Blade or Luke Cage? These are just yes or no answers. Blade. Or- Blade. The wire or power? The wire. Okay. Hot take. Best stand-up comedian, Martin Lawrence or Cat Williams? If I had to take their catalog today, I would go Cat. But that's only because Cat is creating more product and just... Okay. The 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 it's cat it, it it's cat, but also with a with the artist with a stand up like Martin, you have to take into account that he had an opportunity for a film career that wasn't necessarily afforded to Cat Williams. Same with Chris Tucker. I feel like because their film careers took off, we got cheated out of those extra two extra or three more years. hour specials mm-hmm. that would have made them canon. You know, like truly, truly, you know, canon. Hmm, that's the way Cat is. Okay, late 1990s and early 2000s Southern rap goes to Outkast or Big Timers? Outkast. It doesn't even, I don't even, whatever okay. you was about to say after that didn't even matter. <laughs> Though I enjoy Big Timers, I've been listening to them. Uh huh. Okay. I'm, listen, I'm going with Outkast, hands down. On Thanksgiving, uh, are you grabbing a slice of sweet potato pie or pumpkin pie? Sweet potato. I, I'm like, what? Where is? Why are we stalling? Yeah. There's no, there's no question. Yeah. P.S. One day I'll make a sweet potato pie. Everyone wants my recipe from a few episodes ago, but I can't share it because it's in the family. Uh, okay, favorite city to perform stand up? Cleveland, Ohio. Mm-hmm. We gotta have you back so we. There's no up better place. The, the Cleveland, Ohio, 
and it's not even close. But well, Chicago's close, but Cleveland. Them black people is happy. Them black people is smart. Them black people ready to laugh. Them black folks, are, it's the perfect convergence of the different wealth classes of blackness, mm. all in one place, ready to laugh at something. I've never had a better time on stage. Like Ohio feels like a very northern southern state to me. Okay, where do you feel yeah. most at home, Birmingham or New York City? There was a time where this wouldn't have been a tough question. Um, you know, New York City is my home. That's where that's where my son is. You know, in my Twitter profile, it says, bury me in Alabama, though. That's true. And I still stand by that. Okay. You know, so that'll always be home. But, you know, when you go home, you start seeing the things and the policies that restrict you from doing the things that you want to do. So there's more work to be done at home to change the infrastructure so that the same type of accomplishments can be you know. achieved. Our last question. Uh, for some listeners, they know that the two of us have a complicated history with grits um, and how I choose to eat my grits. <laughs> and it's, it's, got, it's got some strain in our friendship over well, the years. Um, so knowing that complicated relationship between Chrissy and Roy and grits, are you a cheese or butter or sugar grits person? Never sugar. Cheese. Okay. Cheese and a little salt. Cheese and a little salt. Cheese and a little salt. Oh, Roy, thank you so much for joining me today. I could talk yeah, to you yeah, forever. Yeah, let's, let's segue let's, out of let's, that. Let's, we will go to let's war. end on a good note. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> yes. For our listeners out there, we don't want to go down the grits rabbit hole. That'll be another podcast where I'll explain to you our long and sordid history in grits. <laughs> thank you all so much. To Roy Wood Jr. for joining The Blackest Questions. I want to thank you all for listening to The Blackest Questions. Don't forget, you can listen to The Griot's Writing Black Podcast, hosted by me, Maisha Kai. This isn't your typical writing podcast. We interview any and everybody that has anything to do with writing, from comics to poets to authors to journalists to politicians and more. Remember, that's Writing Black every Sunday right here on the Griot's Black Podcast Network. Download the Griot's app to listen to Writing Black wherever you are.